As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport pod on The Athletic alongside us as ever from The Athletic football news reporter Matt Slater. Coming up today, we're going to talk to Simon Hallett, owner of English League One side Plymouth Argyle and chief investment officer at Harding Lovner, an investment boutique that manages more than $70 billion for individuals and institutions. And we'll talk to him about how he finds the balances between running a football club like a business but also as a labour of love because he is a lifelong Plymouth fan. This is the business of sport from The Athletic. So we'll play you the interview in just a moment, but Matt, it is fascinating, isn't it? His insight is really interesting into data and the decision-making processes, both within football and business, that are very important to him. Yeah, I think so. Because his day job and his the reputation that he's built in business, which is which is phenomenal, to be honest. He picks stocks. He's he's in, you know he his job is to work out which companies are worth investing in for a long time. And I find that really really interesting when we talk to all these people that are buying into football. You know, what is it that attracts you to football? What what are you seeing? And Simon's brilliant. I don't want to sort of steal his thunder, but it, he kind of shoots that down straight away. That you know, this <laughs> football's not an amazing investment. That's that's not really why you should be here. Which, which I think is one is refreshingly honest, but is also sort of kind of beautiful and romantic because that we talk an awful lot about. I mean, it's the business of sport, right? But he's not seeing it through that lens, and I and I and I like that. And I but but then he couldn't help himself that he still does want it to be sensible. You know, he, he doesn't just want it to be fancy football. He can't stop being a good businessman, which I think was quite. It comes across quite a few times in the interview, and we get into things like you know all the obvious stuff, really, the salary cap, um, you know, his relationships with other owners. You know how he has created a culture there. He, he comes across as a really, really nice boss, to be honest. And that, and I think he, he he's bringing that to the club. I also think he's interesting because he is a Brit who has lived abroad and has lived in the states in the US for a long time. So I think he has a real insight about what Americans and there is this big wave of American mm-hmm. investment into European football. What it is they they're bringing 
and what it is they see. So uh, there's a lot here, and I and I, I he, he just came across really well for me. Yeah, and for me, there is a lot in this, uh, as Matt says. Also, just keep an ear out. There is a great line in this on what it is like to own a football club. This is our interview with Simon Hallett, the owner of Plymouth Argyle. I suppose, Simon, before we dig into where uh, Plymouth are and where the EFL are and the mechanics of the current state of the game, just give everybody listening to this an idea of your background and your business career and how you've come to, to be involved with Plymouth. My background is that I lived in Plymouth between 1966 and when I went off to university in 1974. But I think of myself as from Plymouth and from Devon, it, you know, your high school probably defines where you think of yourself as being from. Um, and although I went to a rugby playing school, I was a soccer fan, if you'll forgive forgive me. I'm sitting in Pennsylvania. That's all right. <laughs> um, so I was an Argyle fan. I used to go and watch Argyle when I could. I was mostly playing sports on Saturdays, but um, I, I was an Argyle fan and I've considered myself an Argyle fan ever since. Um, about five years ago, I thought that it was time for me to see if there was anything I could do and get more closely involved with Argyle. So um, through a friend of a friend who was on the board at the time, I got in touch and they said to me, would you like to be a minority shareholder? Which actually they said, would you like to be a majority shareholder? And I said, no, thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> certainly not not initially. So I became a minority shareholder um, about five years, actually almost exactly five years ago. And then as the years went by, I gradually got more involved or sucked in, just depending on your uh, how you want to frame it. And then about two years ago, I became the majority shareholder and chairman. And then about 18 months ago, I bought out the previous owner, a guy called James Brent. Um, so now I'm the 97% owner of Argyle. Um, there are a couple of smaller shareholders who are on the board, but that, that's about it. So basically, I'm the owner and chairman of Argyle. The background really is that I'm a fan. I left England 30, actually, when did I leave England? 1981. What's that? 40 years ago? Good God. Yes. Um, <laughs> and spent spent 10 years living in Hong Kong, then came to join a startup investment management company. I'm in the investment business. So, you know, we, we have a pretty successful business that looks after other people's money. As a hugely successful businessman, how much did you deliberate about getting involved with the football club? Not at all. This is nothing to do with business. This is, I actually find it quite offensive when people say football's all about money. It's not. Now, I'm slightly unusual that I am a fan who's bought his boyhood club. Yes. It's his childhood dream thing. Football is a terrible, terrible business. And any successful business person who invests in football, particularly lower league football in England, because they think it's going to be a good business, is completely off their rocker as far as I'm concerned. You know, in the investment game, we have a, uh, a model of what assets are worth and you know you you forecast the cash flows accruing to that at, to the shareholders you discount them at the appropriate rate you add them up and it's an approximation of what something's worth in football as far as i can see there there are no cash flows that accrue to the shareholders so you know even real madrid i think doesn't pay dividends and if real madrid's the richest club in the world as an investment person real madrid is worthless and to me plymouth argyle as a club has no value, has no investment value whatsoever. So this is, for me, a, a, a labour of love. This is nothing to do with being a business person. I've said from day one, from being involved, that we would not run Plymouth Argyle 
as a business, but we would be business-like in the way we run it. So my objectives with, I even hesitate to call it investment, this <laughs> purchase <Our nation. laughs> of, of Plymouth Argyle is about, and this will sound schmaltzy and cheesy, but I'm afraid it's the truth. The ratepayers of Plymouth paid for my high school education. They paid for my university education. And as the years have gone by, I've realized that success in business, like success in anything, is a function partly of the start you had, partly a function of your own skill. But there's a lot of luck involved. And the good education I had that the ratepayers of Plymouth paid for is um, partly successful for it. So this is a little bit of payback. It's a bit more payback than I thought, frankly. But um, I'm having more fun than I thought. So it's all working out well. So we've established that you're not in it for the money. No, no, no. I know, I know, I know that. No, I, I was being, I was being a bit cheeky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, but right, you are running it like a business, and I've noticed yeah. that that you know, to your enormous credit, you are incredibly transparent as well. I've just looked at your accounts; they're all published on the website. You're, you know, you would still qualify as a small company, right? So you don't have to yes. reveal that much, but you've chosen to. I know you've already written off some loans, right? Uh, not written off. Uh, Converted, uh, to converted to equity. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So, so whilst this clearly isn't a high growth investment, can can you break even, Simon? Can can you get your enjoyment and not lose your shirt in Plymouth Argyle? Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. You know, if we get to the championship and there's somebody with more money than me, or certainly prepared to spend more money than me, who wants to invest and make the push for the Premier League, then yeah, I think that person could make money and I'd probably make make some money. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I do think that buying clubs, sh you should be able to not lose your shirt. Though I, I do think that having club ownership, a labour of love rather than a pure business is probably the most rational way to do it. It's just a terrible way to have a business. You know, the, the fans all think they own the club. The fans all think it should be a democracy. Our goal is for Argyle to be financially sustainable. And that's because I want to leave it in better shape than when I took it on. And I have to say that when I took it on, it was in better shape than when my predecessor took it on. So I do think it's possible to run a club on a financially sustainable basis. And we've actually, over the last year or so, we've talked at some length to our fans about this. And one of the reasons actually is because of the parallels with frontier markets. Buying stocks in frontier markets is an activity that can be profitable because the markets are desperately inefficient. And I think it's the same in football. Uh, the, lower down league, the lower down the leagues you get, the less efficient markets get, the less effective good decision-making is. And I think that's something we can exploit. So, you know, we, given the numbers that we've seen about financial resources of other clubs and given the potential that we think we have, and I know potential is one of the most dangerous words in football, but, you know, we, we've been explicit. We think we can run the club uh, smarter than many other clubs, which is a process that we've embarked on in the last 12 months or so. Um, so our financial resources are going to be bottom half of the championship but I think the way that we make decisions can be top half and the co combination should should give us a reasonable chance of being sustainable in the championship which means financial break even and you know a reasonable probability of not getting relegated where reasonable is 60 to 70 percent but you know there's football is a combination the results in football are a combination of luck and skill and 
you can you can get unlucky, but we're going to try to be as skillful as possible. Can you give me uh, an example or two of how you would or how you are running the club smarter or would that give secrets away to others? No, I don't think it's any secret about how you can run a club more smartly. It's all about better decision making. And I should say that, you know, people ask us the same at my firm, Harding Lovner, where over the last 30 years, we've become, I think, pretty good at decision making. Well, we wouldn't have been, you know, we're in the investment business. We wouldn't have been successful if we hadn't made good decisions. But I think what we've learned about decision making is transferable to football because a lot of the biases that you see in investing are the biases that you see in any decision making and therefore the biases that you see in football. So we've, for example, we've hired um, consultants to help us with data analytics. We are now using data to augment the judgment of our people in uh, recruiting. Uh, We've made much more progress than I thought we would make in a year or so in using data to analyze the opposition, to come up with game plans. My, my kind of thought was that we would go from recruitment to eventual on the field stuff. So look, this, this is all, the, the roadmap here is very well known. You know, Michael Lewis wrote the book Moneyball back in 2001. There's a film about it. It was yeah. a book, Matt, you're a writer. You should go to the book first. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but there is a, I mean, I have a quote from you in front of me, Simon, at least I hope it is a quote from you because it, it, it appears in an article written by Alex Steger that where the quote is, original thought is overrated, good decisions matter more. Yeah, it's actually stronger than that. Um, I, I've said that everything we've done about implementing an investment process at Harding Lovner is available in various guidebooks. So what we're talking about is get where you get your competitive edge. And I don't think you get your competitive edge from what we know about decision-making. It comes from having people who are prepared to adopt it. And it's really, really difficult to persuade people to give up their freedom. You know, football, like investment management, like stock picking, has a culture that says, that has a culture that glorifies the genius. It glorifies Brian Clough. It glorifies Sir Alex. And it glorifies the manager of the moment. And, you know, if we look at the data, and I know that you've had Stefan, Mr. Unpronounceable, too many vowels. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's key. Yeah. Um, you know, who wrote book. the book with Simon Cooper and then a book, I think, on his own. Yeah. Um, yeah. um you know, they've done the analysis. There are very few managers who have had a significant impact over and above their budgets. And I think that that's that's interesting in itself because it reveals this glorification of the genius. And I I think that good process, good structure, discipline effectively, and you've obviously read our website, so you'll hear us talk about process, structure and discipline the whole time. We can do that in football. But it requires people who are prepared to say, I don't know everything. Sometimes the data is better than my judgment. And it's contrary to football culture. This goes back to uh, Tolstoy and War and Peace, you know, the captain myth. Oh, the, yes, absolutely. The, the glorious yeah, general, absolutely. you know, there's, there's, there's luck and, and all sorts involved. You know, Bonaparte was famous for saying, I'd rather have a lucky general than a skillful mm. one. So is Ryan Lowe, is he, is he your Napoleon? I see you've given him a new contract and you've got a young team. Is that the strategy? He's not my Napoleon. He's my whoever Napoleon's kind of 
Number two was the only place at Argar where I've said <laughs> this is non-negotiable. This is what I know about is in decision making. And it's been made clear to Ryan. I think Ryan kind of thought, yeah, 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 at first. But R Ryan has come to believe it. So the competitive advantage we have with Ryan is that Ryan is young and inexperienced, which sounds stupid. But if, if he'd been successful manager, he wouldn't be prepared to change. But Ryan is surrounded by young, ambitious, hungry people who are just desperate to get any minor bit of advantage you want, which is exactly what you need. So if if and they have been it, so they've now been persuaded that this is one of the routes to go down. And of course, it's only one of the routes. He's surrounded by Stephen Schumacher, by Neil Dusnit. So we, we have a football team that is desperate to learn. And I'm thrilled at the progress that we've made it's, it's way beyond my expectations and kind of along the lines of my hope and by progress i don't mean that we're brilliant at implementing all the data analytic but we've got a football management team that is prepared to to embrace it and that to me is where the edge lies not not in knowing what to do you, you can read a book about matthew benham and what he's done at brentford yeah mm, you can brentford, read the book yeah. but yeah. nobody does <laughs> do you therefore open up your expertise from Harding Lovner, do you make that available to Ryan? Is there, yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah, because I mean, th there are a number of uh, Sean Wayne, who is the England rugby league head coach, he used to be the coach of Wigan Warriors, went yeah. to be the head of performance at Scottish Rugby Union, but then yeah. took time out and then spent a lot of time actually going around talking to firms like Deloitte on management and decision making and people. And that, that crossover is yeah. more and more and to be exploited on both sides, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But but I think, you know, we're learning more and more about this field is is a kind of crossover from psychology to economics to finance and now to other activities. The kind of father of behavioral economics was actually a psychologist, a guy called Danny Kahneman, who was a Princeton psychologist who got the Nobel Prize for economics back in 2002. So this is a pretty new field. And it really is, it is, it is at the junction of psychology, economics and, and finance, but other activities as well. This is about how humans make decisions. And, you know, you see it yourself, Mark, you know, you spend a lot of time talking to pundits and it, it drives me crazy as somebody who knows a little bit about the data. You know, the, the, the classic is you see a Premier League striker through on goal and the, all he has to beat is the goalkeeper. You know, so imagine everybody else is lying on the ground mm. and the goalkeeper saves it and the pundit says, oh, he has to score. Well, the facts will tell you that he scores about 50% of the time. <laughs> so why does the pundit say he has to score as opposed to he has to save it when the striker does score? These are all little irrationalities that can be kind of that, that help you look at a the outcomes of a football game rather differently. Does that make your the environment that you've created at Plymouth more forgiving? Because if your if your striker has gone has gone clean through and doesn't score, are you creating an environment by saying, well, you know, well, he has to save it rather than he has to score? Does that take the pressure off everybody a bit and therefore maybe increase performance? That is exactly right. That is a terrific observation. I'll tell you why. Now, in my business, one of the problems with short-term performance orientation is that 
you're constantly doing things that you know may be unwise for the longer term, but you're 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 going to suffer from what what we call career risk. You know that you care more about your the risk to your career looking stupid than you do about the long term outcomes for your clients. And we've made it absolutely clear to Ryan that we expect him to adopt these processes. We expect him to adopt these structures. And as a result, we will be very forgiving of short to medium term results. So long as the processes are correct, so long as the structures are correct. So, okay, so true story. We were, I think, seventh in League One back in November. We had a board meeting before a game at Fleetwood, I think, yeah, November. And the board meeting went tremendously well. Our information was good. You know, we'd finally got the structures down. It didn't overrun. There wasn't any blather. The report from Neil Dusnip was excellent. Everything went really well. And I wrote a note to Neil Dusnip saying, you know, how pleased I was with progress that we're making on the football side as well as in the rest of the club. And Ryan called me on the Saturday just to say that he was pleased that I was pleased and you know, it was a kind of fun. I don't speak to him very often. It was just a nice, nice call. And I said, look, you're going to have to lose three games in a row because I think we're outperforming and you're going to have to lose three games in a row just so I can prove <laughs> we're not going to fire you. We then lost six in a row. <laughs> but, but, you know, nobody said for a minute, you know, we've got to change our manager. And, you know, it's about process. And Ryan will be learning. Ryan understands that he has a great opportunity at Plymouth Argyle to learn his craft relatively secure. And only when you have that kind of security and that long-term approach by the manager, who, as you observed, now has, we've just renewed his contract for an extra three years, along with that of um, Stephen Schumacher. When you have a manager who can, afford to take that kind of long-term view where he's worried about results over you know two seasons not the next three Saturdays he can take a long-term approach to the squad and that's an important part of the Argyle strategy you know I said that we want to take on Exeter Exeter have been brilliant at what they've done with their academy on on limited resources they've taken the resources they've got they've invested them in the academy they've you know had a, a procession of sought after players that they've sold they've taken that money they've reinvested it in the academy as well as in the first team and other things and that that's what we want to do we want to make sure that we not Exeter have the best academy in Devon and Cornwall and the Exeter people know we're after them by the way so <laughs> so again we've been very public about this but if if a manager is scared of, you know, putting in a 21-year-old striker as opposed to going out and paying money for a recognised 30-year-old, mm. we're not going to be able to exploit that academy. So you're absolutely right, Mark. This, does this takes the pressure off. It takes the short-term pressure off, but it puts the pressure on them to do the right thing. And that's absolutely critical in my view. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Simon, going back to um, to kind of running a club in a sustainable way. Clearly, this is a really unusual year, yeah. right? No one yeah. saw this coming, and you have to sort of you know kind of make huge allowances. I think yeah. for just how weird and difficult yeah. this year is. Um, how bad has it been for you for Plymouth? I mean, how how are you coping and managing? It's been actually okay. I mean, it's obviously traumatic not to be able to go. It's obviously desperately disappointing that our fans can't see the game. And there's obviously been tremendous pressure on the club staff who have been, you know, some we've had to lay a couple of people off. We've had people on furlough. So we've been managing as if we, you know, we were on the verge of bankruptcy, but we have not been on the verge of bankruptcy. So about last June, July, when it started to look like we were going to have to reopen and, and start playing again, we did a bunch of scenario analyses and said, look, if the worst thing happens and there are no fans, there's no bailout, there's no nothing, basically we're just going to lose money from playing football, um, what would the deficit be? We decided it would be about three and a half million pounds. So I actually put three and a half million pounds into the club, which has been a reserve and the temptation, of course, is to spend it, but um, we've kept it. We've kept it in reserve. So we haven't had the same financial pressures from day one. And then a lot of things have gone right. We've had a bit of insurance money that has come in. We've had a bit of bailout from the Premier League, as you, as you know. The government furlough scheme has helped us, obviously. And above all, our fans have been remarkable so we sold you know this time last year we sold i forget the exact number but five you know five or six thousand season tickets as usual we offered refunds early on and very few of our fans said that they wanted them we then said right you know if the season restarts we're not going to offer refunds again and we kind of changed our minds because things were bad so we did offer refunds 97 percent of our fans have not asked for refunds do you think it helps because you are a fan yourself and therefore yes. they, they respect what you are doing? I think it's it does help because I'm a fan myself and I've made it clear I'm a fan myself. And I think what we've been able to do, I mean, it's been a, this has been a kind of 11 or 12 year process since Argyle was in administration. So under James, you know, Argyle's finances were stabilised, but Argyle, frankly, was run on a shoestring. And Argyle is no longer, it's still run in a business-like way. And I put money in and I'm not going to put more money in. Uh, I've made that clear. But um, but we've restored, we've gone from Argyle having survived to Argyle being a source of civic pride. And I'm extremely proud of that. You know, it's partly because we've made it clear that not just I'm a fan, but Argyle is being run for both the fans and the community. And, you know, when I first became involved in Argyle, I talked a lot about you know, the community side of Argyle, we have a really, really successful community trust, which frankly, historically has been better run than the club itself. Transparency has two sides. You know, I think you said, mm. Mark, you know, why have you done it? I've done it partly because I think it's the right thing to do, but partly by being transparent, you lay bare all the good you're doing. So it, it's good from a PR point of view. 
And so, you know, the Argyle brand, if you like, if you want to put it in business terms, is much, much stronger than it was 12 years ago. And I'd argue even more strong than it was three years ago. And that has ramifications. It helps our relationship with the Plymouth City Council. It helps our relationships with the business community. It helps us um, with sponsors. You know, I think um, even Ginsters, who are our front of shirt sponsors and have been Argyle's sponsors for over 20 years and share our commitment to you know community values even they walked away from argyle for a, a year or two, year or two when the brand was toxic it no longer is and it, it's it's gone from being toxic to being not toxic to being a source of pride and i think our fans recognize that you know by supporting the club they're supporting the community as well now i mean it's just terrific absolutely terrific transparency is so easy you have got this reputation for being transparent yeah. and honest and explaining yes. your decision making and one of the things that you were honest and transparent about was that you didn't like the salary cap that got thrown out a week or so ago that we've talked about so so why so our whole strategy has been based our financial strategy has been based on being businesslike and you know when you're businesslike and you're trying to generate a return albeit for your shareholders you sweat your assets and I've heard you use that phrase so I know you know what it means but one of the ways you sweat your assets is that you make them work for you during as much time as you can so one of the first things that I you know converted debt to equity for was so that we could rebuild our grandstand our basic strategy has been to use Argyle's assets our stadium which we own which we bought back uh, four years ago from the Plymouth City Council but to use that to generate revenue which can be invested in long-term Argyle infrastructure, you know, whether it be for the academy, for first team training facilities, in facilities for our women's team, or for making the fan experience better. But we want Argyle to be able to compete with money as well as smarts. And, you know, I thought it was unfair on us when we basically resisted the temptation to spend a lot of money on the first team rather invested it. People say invest in a new striker. You don't invest in a new striker, you spend. So it struck me that, you know, looking out three years or even when we're back to normal, Argyle will have one of the highest levels of revenue in League One. And we won't spend crazy money, but we wanted to be able to at least be competitive in terms of what we spent. And, you know, we will be able to spend, we would have been able to spend spend more than where the cap was set. So we actually voted mm. against it. Having said that, I came round to thinking that it would actually be a good thing for Argyle for the simple reason that, you know, if we're generating revenues from ticket sales, from sponsorship, from this thing of somewhere between eight and 10 million pounds, if spending on the first team was capped at two and a half, you know, I'd be mm -hmm. able to get my money back. Joking, you joking. Yeah. <laughs> you are doing everything the right way and you are you are a conscientious owner. To, what what about those because what has come through in this chat is 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 the love for Plymouth, the love for the community, wants to give back to a community that gave you a lot through your education. What about those owners who have no community ties whatsoever and are using clubs as a as a gambling tool? 
yeah. crudely yeah. to make money if they can get them up. Because yeah, the sa- can, by yeah. by not having the salary cap, that makes that makes those clubs vulnerable, doesn't it? I couldn't agree more. And that you know that's the basic problem. So this isn't going to happen. This wouldn't have happened to Argyle anyway. But I, I it's, just to finish that last thought, if I may. Yeah, sorry. You know, having mm. that excess, those surplus monies would have enabled us to invest without the pressure of having to spend on the first team. It would enable us to spend smart, do smart things with the first team with recruitment and so on, but also to invest in our training facilities, to invest in our academy, to make the facilities for our fans better without, you know, the, the kind of pressure of having to spend more on a new striker look i completely agree and i think that this is the problem that we've had in football it's kind of a twofold problem one of it gets back to decision making and people do not i'm not going to pretend that i'm terribly well connected in the football club owner community because i'm not but i know a few now and some you know most of them are absolutely explicit you know we need something to stop us going crazy and you can argue that that's about the psychology of decision making. And, you know, anybody who saw the second series of Sunderland Till I Die and knows, I've, what's his name, Will Grigg, that was a great example of why you need what the psychologists call pre-commitments. You need to put yourself in chains to stop yourself <laughs> getting yeah. sucked in by temptation. And that's the kind of structure and discipline that I talk about. And that's also why it's so hard, because people want to exercise their own judgment. So, you know, I look upon the salary cap as being self-imposed discipline on owners. And, you know, I'm afraid that that's the way it's going to... You could also argue that it's about game theory, that given that we all Mm -hmm. want to advance up the league to at least where we think we should be, you're going to spend more until that money's all gone and that puts you at risk. I want better controls. I'd like to see something like, I think you were describing this, Matt, in a recent po- podcast. Um, oh, it was when you were talking to Andy, Andy Holt. Yeah. Um, and yeah. You, you talked about um, La Liga. Oh, yeah, yeah bespoke yeah. salary caps that fit your revenue. Now, you know, mm. you can see the abuse. You can see, you know, you can see how mm-hmm. these things get abused. But I don't particularly want to stop owners, wealthy people, being able to fund their teams, which, you know, I I mean, I'm a kind of libertarian by (laughs) nature, and I think people should be able to do what they want with their own money. But it does disrupt things for the rest of us. So, you know, I'd like to see owners who are going to go and put a lot of money in, put it in in advance. I think Andy made the point that the trouble is with yeah. the salary cap, what is it, SCMP at the moment, is that it's all done after yeah. the fact and it should be done before the fact. Money should be put in. Yes, yeah, yeah, Money should be put yeah. in escrow yeah. or some kind. I mean, we've got financial whiz kids. Who, this is not beyond the ken of smart no. people. But I, my, my own view is that people should be allowed to spend money on the club so long as their decision no longer to do so doesn't threaten the club and by threaten i mean threaten its very existence i i I Mm -hmm. personally i realize this may be controversial but i personally don't see anything wrong with who was it was it jack warner at blackburn jack walker Walker. you know spending a lot of money on blackburn winning the premier league but then changing his mind and they end up in League One. I mean, what a fantastic few years. If I was a fan, I'd 
and I don't know the details, so I could be talking out of school. Yeah, it was a good journey. It was, it was one, one hell of a ride, of a wasn't ride. it? And can you ask for more than that? The key there, Simon, the key there, and you you might have this coming at some point, is then who bought Blackburn after Jack Walker as a yeah. prime example. Or indeed, yeah, yeah. look at the mess Wigan are in after being yes. bought from mm -hmm. yeah. Dave Whelan. And right at the start of this interview, when you talked about, you know, hopefully eventually getting to the championship and so on and so forth, if somebody comes along, as you say, with more money then and, and buys the club off you, you're going to have to be very, very canny in your decision-making yes. to yes. make sure you don't sell to someone who is going to gamble away, I use that word again, yeah. all of your hard work. Absolutely. Does that, that worry you? Yes. Yeah, very much Very much worries me. We actually have... Um, <laughs> one of the fans said, asked me, what happens if you get hit by a bus? And I was, I kind of, oh, good, good question, actually. Well, you know, I'm 65 years old. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. I'm on Medicare. I mean, yeah. I should have thought of it. So we've actually written a kind of succession plan, a very brief one, um, about what happens, you know, if I do get hit or I go down with COVID. I mean, I, I've actually just been mm. vaccinated, but... Um, no, you're absolutely right. That will be the critical decision. And it's going to have to be something that's made not in co consultation with the fans. And I don't mean the fans will have the final say. They won't, but because it's not a democracy. And it's going to have to be made in consultation with my family. Argyle is now a significant part of my family's assets. My kids are Argyle fans. I mean, they've all I think they've all been, yeah, they've all been to games. They used to get dragged along to games when they were kids occasionally when we were back. The plan at the moment, my wife has said that she would prefer to sell Argyle, but if we can't find a suitable buyer where suitable needs to be, be defined, you know, as you're hinting, needs to be very clearly defined, then we'll hand it over to a committee to be managed you know, which which I think could could manage Argyle perfectly well. I, I must ask because you, you you know you obviously alluded to the fact that you're you're based in the states now. I think you've actually said it earlier mm -hmm. on. There is this growing interest in European football from guys a lot like yeah. you, to be honest, but with yeah, yeah. you know American backgrounds, yeah. fully American backgrounds. What well, what is it? What is it that they see? And do they ever ask you? I know one or two. Um, either that I've met in my role as chairman or that I've met in my role as, you know, kind of investment bloke, they see two things. I mean, uh, several things. I probably think of more as I go along. Um, they, they, they do see a bit of fun. Owning a sports team can be fun. You've seen a lot of um, successful businessmen buy minor league baseball teams, you know, and so on and so on. And I think they would do that as a bit of fun. I think they see the opportunity, you know, the penetration of data analytics and its use in American sport is much greater than it is in England. Um, you know, it's no coincidence that, you know, John Henry at New England Sports Group, he was the first, apart from the Oakland A's, I don't know if you know the history here, but the o Moneyball was about yep. the Oakland. Theo Epstein. Yeah, and yeah exactly, Bean Theo Epstein. And, yeah. So, you know, Theo Epstein came to the Red Sox yep. and they won the World Series for the first time in 100 years. He went off to the White Sox and they won the World Series. It works. But we've also seen it go from baseball, where of course it can work for a whole bunch of reasons, to <laughs> basketball, where it can't mm. possibly work. It's now starting to catch on in hockey and it's obviously caught on in football. And... You know, every day I read things about, you know, actually a guy that we've used as a from a firm of consultants has just been hired as the data analytics guy at Luton Town. 
So, you know, this is catching on in football, but it, it's getting it done that will be the main thing. So I think Americans are more used to this kind of thing and they see an opportunity in Euro football, European football, and I think they're right. I think they're also beguiled by the crossover, what they perceive as the crossover between the American franchise system and, you know, what they're trying to establish at the fringes with, you know, Project Big Picture and, as, as we alluded early on, by the, something like the European Super League. I think they just don't quite get the, and I, I shouldn't say all of them, but I don't think they quite get two things. They don't get the importance of promotion and relegation. And mm. they don't get the importance of the fans and just the kind of emotional baggage baggage in a good sense that you know fans bring to clubs uh, the third thing that i think they see is much more hard-headed and this is where the private equity groups are getting in you know i'd say you know burnley effectively looks like a leverage buyout mm-hmm. by a private equity group and i'm not saying yep. there's anything wrong with that but god bless them i think they think that media rights are still underpriced in european football in particular and they see an opportunity for the leagues to get together on a more coherent basis, more cohesive basis and negotiate media rights. And that that's that's actually, I've seen a couple of investment proposals. And again, I, I'm not pretending to be an expert here, but I think my, my own view, which you, know, you, you guys would know more than me, is that the pricing of media rights has probably peaked. And we're not going to see the kind of payments for uh, Premier League rights that we've seen in the past, partly because... Not domestically. Yeah, partly no. because the big money payers, you know, the Apples, the Netflix, is the Amazons, mm-hmm. you know, they're the people with the money these days. Their direction, their strategic direction seems to me to be about control. You know, so they're becoming yeah. film studios, or mega, mega film studios. Yeah. They don't want territorial rights. They want to preserve their own bargaining power. And that Mm. is where I think some of the American investors are a little bit wrong. But, you know, you can see you can see some of the merits in what they have. You know, the American system is the franchise system and we have promotion relegation. The franchise system basically advertises the league. The league creates value and then it gets divided up, as, as you guys know, know very well. And I think it would be good to have some system whereby we were able to take a more coherent approach to marketing, for example, the English Football League. And I think that was one of the side benefits of Project Big Picture that didn't get enough. The EFL is a pretty attractive thing to market to. It's never going to be the Premier League. But for people who want real football with real fans who understand the excitement of promotion and relegation and understand the role that clubs have. I think I think there's a marketplace for the EFL. And the championship is beginning to do a good job, but why why shouldn't leagues one and two? Does that involve, finally then, do you think that, that means that the EFL clubs need to work together more yeah. to create that product? Right. Okay, how much? How long do you have? I warn you, I've got plenty of time. <laughs> I'm not executive chairman. I've only really been involved at EFL level in the last year and a half, and most of the heavy lifting is done by Andrew Parkinson, our wonderful CEO. 
the governance structure of the EFL strikes me as a bit odd. And at one level, it's um, a membership club, you know, where we have 72 clubs who belong to this big club that organises the tournaments and that that that's about it at, at another level it's increasingly the regulator of the game outside the premier league and obviously overlaps with the role that the football association has the trouble to me is that it still operates as a membership club and i quite like governance structures where you you know you elect a board of directors the board of directors sets the strategy it reports to the shareholders occasionally and then gets on with it and the trouble to me with the EFL is it's got a bunch of highly opinionated people like me who, <laughs> who you know, sit around in these meetings that we have. Everybody gets 10 or 15 seconds to talk. But why? The, I've, I've give, cast my vote for a board member. And if I don't like what the board's doing, I should throw the rascals out and elect a new board. So I would like actually to see more power delegated to the EFL rather than less. I think at the moment it's this rather ugly mix of the EFL having powers, but having to go to the clubs the whole time to you know, get permission to do almost anything. And I, I, I don't think it works. I don't think it works terribly well. The trouble is that football clubs are owned by you know, successful, highly opinionated people, and it's very hard for them to give up the power. I, I include myself in that. <laughs> what a brilliant way to end the podcast with that line that's a there fantastic way what? to end it that with that line um simon on it it's been a joy the last hour it it's been a joy fascinating to yep. talk to you fascinating well we hope you found that as fascinating as we did just before we go we'll talk about another league one club here matt and point everybody towards your exclusive on the athletic uh, on the takeover at ipswich yeah, it, was, it was a piece i wrote last week uh, friday me and my colleague phil buckingham broke a story about an, an american takeover of a league one club lots of similarities with uh, with plymouth in terms of sort of their start their size fan base I think, you know, Ipswich are a bit more famous, I guess, because they've had, they've had more success over the years. But Brett Johnson, a, an, an investor, uh, has a few <laughs> investment funds and some friends who also have investment funds based on the West Coast, uh, buying into Ipswich Town. Um, they've been owned by a very wealthy Brit for a long time, but they've drifted. They were in the Premier League about 20 odd years ago, very successful in the 80s. Fan base desperate for a change of the record there, to be honest. And in my story, I said there's going to be a lot of change. So this American group, Brett Johnson and, and his investors, they, they have a team in the States called Phoenix Rising, who are in the second division in the States, the USL. They're very much, they're in the queue to join the MSL, MLS, sorry. Um, and um, yeah, he's got a really interesting story. I also broke that they were probably going to replace Paul Lambert um, and, and appoint Paul Cook. That that kind of gallops ahead. I think that actually had momentum of its own, to be honest. I don't I don't think I had much to do with that one. So considerable change at Ipswich. And look, and it's had an amazing response, to be honest, of, of, of the many stories I've, I've done over the years. This one has really popped. The, the fan base in Ipswich, I didn't quite realise just how desperate they were for some good news. I didn't, I didn't you know, obviously I'd seen them in a couple of relegations, but they responded to this story. It's been made, it's been it, grim. It, well, it, it has. has been I, grim for them. I think when you support a team like, like, like I support South End, I mean, I think that's grim, right? We're, 
But then there are other clubs. It's all relative. And for Ipswich, this has been grim. The takeover hasn't happened yet. I, you know, I think I think it will. They've already appointed Paul Cook. So, and then Phil Buckingham has then since written an absolutely wonderful feature about um, um, Marcus Evans, the Marcus Evans years. Who, you know, is this it, more of a classic British story? Very wealthy local guy who's thrown money at his local club, chased his losses a little bit, to be honest, and is now moving on. And you can read that on The Athletic. And if you subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of $3.99 a month, you'll get that for six months. And that's 40% off the full price of a subscription. So you'll get the analysis, you'll get the in-depth features like uh, Matt has written on Ipswich uh, and all ad-free versions of our podcast. So go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. Uh, we'll be back next week uh, from both of us. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.